Luke chapter 15. We've been here for the last couple of weeks. We'll continue to press in as we'll extend this lesson, the, really the heart of Christ to please the Father. The heart of Christ is kind of emphasized and, and consolidated for us to, to see what the mission uh, purpose that he came to fulfill. It's found for us there in Luke chapter 15, verse 7, and Luke chapter 15, verse 10. Notice what it says there. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Then in verse 10. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. As we live the Christian life, what is your ambition? What is your goal? What is your finish line? What, what is your objective? What, where, where are you moving towards? What are you, what are you trying to, to orient your life to accomplish? How do you know that you'll be successful in the endeavors of this Christian life? What is your desire as a believer as it relates to, to the path that you've set your course on? The path that Jesus set his course on is, is emphasized here in verse 7 and verse 10. Jesus' desire in ministry was to seek heaven's joy. It was so that the angels and the Father and all the, the living creatures who are in heaven can participate in celebration and enthusiasm and wonder at who God is and what Christ has accomplished in his mission to, in coming to the earth. This mission objective that was set from the very beginning, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they broke fellowship with God because of their sin. And essentially, from that moment, anyone who is a descendant of Adam and Eve is also a participant in sin. Sin passed to all men because all have sinned. And, and, and so, we are beneficiaries, you could say. We experience the repercussions of Adam and Eve's sin by being separated from God because of the sin nature that's been passed to us, but also because of our active participation in rebellion against God. It's very interesting, as I was studying this week, there are 33 words in the New Testament that address our rebellion against God. 33 terms in the New Testament that discuss and describe our sin against God. Ten main root words that are all used in various prepositions that are attached to them to describe our hostility against God. That's how bad we are. That's how depraved we are. That's how wicked we are. And because of coming short of the glory of God, we stand as those who deserve condemnation, deserve judgment. But Jesus came to, to change all of that. 
Jesus came with the express purpose of overcoming the sin barrier and welcoming us into relationship with God. We enjoy peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ as we come to terms with our sinfulness We confess that sinfulness to God. We experience then the benefits of forgiveness. And all of that is this term, repentance, that Jesus is referring to in these two parables in Luke chapter 15. We're going to see it again as we come to the, the story of the prodigal son that carries on from verses 11 to the end of the chapter. Jesus came to help amplify the joy of heaven. So there's celebration in heaven over one sinner who repents. We've come to see that he came to seek and to save the lost. That really is kind of the description that Luke gives of his ministry. In Luke chapter 19, he came to seek and to save the lost. That's what Jesus' focus was kind of his mission statement, as it were. And it was, it was all to lead to repentance of individuals and the joy of heaven in the process. So what leads to joy? What makes the angels erupt into exaltation? What makes them sing and dance, as it were, in heaven? Well, what makes them sing and dance and rejoice is captured for us in two places in the Gospel of Luke. We find angels in joy, in my search, maybe you can find others, but in my quick search, there are two places, they both are found in the Gospel of Luke, where the angels are seen rejoicing. The first is in Luke chapter 2. The angels come to the shepherds. It says, in the same region there were shepherds out in the fields. Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 11 keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Can you hear it? The joy of the angels in heaven. Why? It will be to all the people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Heaven's joy is in view. The celebration of God and the glory of God in heaven is in view. Jesus came to amplify joy by coming and seeking and saving the lost. That other place we've already read here in Luke chapter 15, verse 7 and verse 10, we find this amplified joy, the joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Why would they rejoice over this? How does the rejoicing inform our own activity? If this is what causes the angels to rejoice, how should we learn from their celebration and be drawn into the ministry of Christ and wanting to echo his ministry and thus also amplify continuing joy in heaven. Jesus, of course, is responding to the grumbling hearts of the Pharisees. Jesus is interested in giving instructions regarding his mission and ministry to help paint the picture for the Pharisees 
in, in, in what his ministry is all about and helping them to understand why the Father sent him in the first place. Consistently, we find encapsulated in Christ's mission statements that repeatedly expound this heart. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. In Mark chapter 10, 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. In Luke chapter 5, verse 32, Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In John chapter 20, verse 31, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Sinners called to repentance, believing in who he is and what he came to do, believing that Jesus alone is the pathway to heaven. All of these key mission statements point to the one great reality. Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus came to save you. He came to rescue your heart and mine. Jesus came for a desperate group of individuals. Jesus came to to overcome that which separates us from God. The sin that stands as a barrier between fellowship with a holy and majestic and glorious God. Sin is in the way. Jesus came to solve that issue. He came to seek after you, to call you to himself, to draw you near, to welcome you into relationship, to address very pointedly the rebellion of your heart. And, and that is a hard conversation, a hard reality for us to come to terms with, but it's necessary in order for us to enjoy the benefits of God's grace and forgiveness to us. It only happens one way, confronting sin, telling us who we really are apart from him, and then providing the hope of salvation that comes through faith in Christ alone. Paul will say it succinctly and clearly in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, when he says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. This is the apostle Paul we're talking about. Coming to terms with who he is, recognizing where he stands before a holy God, he is the chief of sinners and thus the one who has enjoyed the greatest measure of grace. By the way, the more you come to terms with the, the wickedness of your heart, the more you can revel in the grace of God for you. That's what Paul is praying for the church of Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 3 when he says that you might know the unsurpassing, with uns, the unsurpassing knowledge of the love of Christ, the width and length and breadth and height, to know the extent of God's love for you, how broken, how wicked, how depraved, how ungodly you are, allows you to enjoy the full measure of God's kindness to you in overcoming that sin, in drawing you into relationship with him. Father, I pray even in this moment, you would help us to be honest with ourselves.
about our own brokenness. I pray that like the Apostle Paul, you would help us to see that we are the greatest sinner in this room. Not just theoretically, but that we could really see how desperate we are for you. Regardless of how long we've been a believer, Lord, reveal that light into our hearts, that truth, so we can see it for what it really is, and then begin to enjoy in fuller and a fuller way your kindness and love and grace that is so boundless for us. God, thank you that you came to seek and to save the lost. May we come to understand the significance of that and seek to echo your ministry in the lives of others. Amen. So how did Jesus accomplish this ministry of seeking and saving the lost? Well, he accomplished this ministry by receiving and eating with sinners. He received and ate with sinners. This is, the, this is what the, the Pharisees are grumbling about. Well, who do you think you are, Jesus? You think you're some spiritual dude and you're hanging out with the riffraff of Israel? Don't you know religious people don't do that? And Jesus says, oh, you're probably right. Religious people don't do that, but God does this because God's mission and God's heart is to rescue sinners. And you can't do that unless you're around sinners. He received sinners, as we find in our passage. He spent time with them. He ate with them. He fellowshiped with them. And no doubt, he took an interest in their life. He asked them personal questions about their hurts, their pains, their joys, because Jesus cared about them as people made in the image of God. He cared about their soul. Jesus was the embodiment of love to a hurting world. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2 says, Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. So everything we find in Jesus' life was the embodiment of love. You want to know what love looks like? You want to know what a heart for the Father looks like? Look to Jesus. Walk in his steps. Emulate his life. Follow the pattern of his instructions. And you will be able to to begin to to follow in the pattern of of God's love and, and emulate the heart of God to a broken world. We are touched by Jesus' care for the hurting, aren't we? Healing their diseases, touching the unclean, meeting their needs. Our our minds immediately run to the tender moments of Jesus' ministry where he weeps with Mary and Martha at the tomb of Lazarus, knowing that just in a moment he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, but he, he shares in their heart of grief and sorrow over the loss of their brother. We come to appreciate the tenderness of Jesus in rebuking his disciples by saying, let the little children come to me. Forbid them not, for such is the kingdom of heaven. We come to appreciate his tenderness as he's compelled to travel through Samaria. And there is a woman who is outcast from her own people there in Samaria. There she is at the heat of the day at this well. Jesus meets her there all alone, ministers to her heart, draws her in to relationship by confronting her sin. Or where Jesus makes his way to an obscure little town called Nain, 
So just so that he can intercept a funeral procession that's there, a widow woman who is mourning the loss of her only son. Jesus comes and intercepts this party, lays his hands on that tomb, that casket on the boy, and he's raised. These are the touching scenes of Christ's unmistakable love for sinners. But make no mistake, his love for sinners was just as present, just as clear, just as direct through his confrontation of their sin. In Luke chapter 13, verses 1 to 5, Jesus confronts the entire audience that is there present who are preoccupied with a recent tragedy that has happened. In their minds of first century culture, they're thinking, well, if these people experience this tragedy, there must be something terribly wrong with their spiritual life. Jesus makes a very direct statement to those who are in the audience there in Luke chapter 13, just a page away. Look there with me, Luke 13, 1 to 5. There were some present at that very time who told them about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. He answered them, Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18, on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus' ministry was full of confrontation. He confronted their hypocrisy. He confronted their greed, their craving for comfort, their lack of faith, their self-righteousness, their lack of mercy, their spiritual blindness, their love of attention, their desire for prominence in the community, and that is in just Luke chapter 13. Why was Jesus so forceful? Because Jesus understood the only thing that would lead to heaven's joy. Jesus knew the only thing that would turn the heart of a sinner to God, and that was to confront them at their deepest level, to confront their sin head on, to help to undo their blindness, to help them see their separation from God. In their self-righteousness, all they could see was we love God, but their sin was evidence against that claim. Jesus knew that the only thing that would lead to heaven's joy is one sinner who repents. Jesus loved them too much for them to perish. So he called sinners to repentance. That's our next point. That's what he did. We can understand this in the context of an unbelieving world. We appreciate the call to share the gospel of salvation to the lost. We, we know the great commission that's given to us in Matthew 28, uh, 19 to 20. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations. We understand that we're to, to go out into the world where there are unbelievers and help them see and know the gospel. We, we recognize that as a burden that we have been given by God through Christ. But maybe we have a hard time wrapping our head around the fact that Jesus came initially not for unbelievers who are outside the community. He came to the covenant community to awaken their hearts. These are people 
who were religious. They believed in God. They knew the Bible. They went to synagogue. They obeyed God's commands. They observed the religious uh, ceremonies. You might say, these are the church people. These are the people that Jesus came primarily to confront with their sin. Jesus had to confront their spiritual blindness. He needed to call them to repentance. This word repentance is the Greek word metanoia. It's a, it, it happens to be a present active participle. And this is significant for us because repentance isn't a one-time activity. Repentance is, me, is meant to be a present, continual activity in the life of a true believer. As you come to a place of recognizing your brokenness from God, how your sin has severed you from intimacy with him, as you are, are, are seeing more and more the truth of the word of God and coming to terms with that, God is bringing to bear with the work of his Holy Spirit, convicting your heart, and your response is to say, God, forgive me. And 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Praise be to God that he is able to delight over repentance as often as we repent. More than just one time. So the more you repent and the more you come to terms with your brokenness and the, the misalignment of your life to God, the, the, the more heaven celebrates over you. A heart that is tender, a heart that is receptive, a heart that is willing to, to bend and to comply to the standards that God has set. This word to repent is to change one's life. It, 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 it's, it's a course correction in your life, a change of attitude, thought concerning sin and righteousness. While there is a definitive point in every life of turning to God in salvation, in initial repentance, it's meant to be an ongoing expression of who you are. So the Christian life is meant to be marked by repentance. But here's the danger. The danger is this. The moment we walk away from repentance is the moment we open our heart and life to the dangers of falling away. The moment your heart is closed off to repentance. The moment sin is confronted and you say no, you open your life to the danger of falling away. And here we have in your notes in, throughout the New Testament, I think there are nine different words that are used to describe Christians Believers, those who at least made an initial profession of faith, who fall away. They're described as those who reject this word atheteo. There are several verses there that describe this, it's particularly in 1 Timothy 1.19, says, saying, having faith in good conscience, which some have rejected, this is it, concerning the faith have suffered shipwreck. May we not be like them. May our hearts be tender to repent and not reject the truth that is so clear in the word. 1 Peter 2, 4 says that he was rejected. How does it go? 
He was uh, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. The same word of rejecting Christ. We also find this word fall away. Peripipto. We find this in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 6. It's those who, who fall away from the faith. We find in Matthew chapter 24, verses 9 to 13, another word for falling away, which is the word scandalizo. And over and over and over, we find warnings throughout the New Testament of those who, who give lip service to faith in Christ, but because of a heart that resists repentance, resists the true word of God in speaking into their life, they run the risk, the danger of falling away and abandoning Christ altogether. Jesus, in describing this activity in the parable of the soils, points to two main reasons why people turn away. In Luke chapter 8, verse 13 and 14, he says, In the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in times of testing, they fall away. As for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. Two main reasons why there's a falling away, an abandonment of the Christian life, of faith in Christ. And, and those two reasons are persecution and testing, difficulties that come, and life is, is full of those, but also the cares of this world, the comforts of this world, the distractions of this world, the conveniences of this world. The moment we choose not to repent is the moment we open ourselves to the danger of falling away, shipwreck of our faith. So if this is the priority of Christ, of his life in ministry, and this is the reason for heaven's joy, then how do we as believers walk in Christ's steps and seek the same joy? What is a person to do? How do we defend ourselves? How do we guard our families? How do we protect one another? How do we pursue heaven's joy by calling sinners to repentance? How do we do this? What is the, what is the mandate for us? What are the instructions that we have? Is there any hope for us? And of course there is. So we turn to our next main point, our ministry, our ministry of seeking heaven's joy. It's to emulate the Savior. It's to walk in his steps. It's to do what Christ does through the power of God in the power of his word, through the instrumentation of his Holy Spirit, to be ambassadors of Christ and to walk in his steps and to carry out his ministry. We do this first by examining our own heart. We examine our own heart. Matthew chapter seven, verse, verses one to five says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Sorry, that's not Matthew 7. That's Matthew 18. Matthew 7. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you seek, see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? 
How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrites. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The journey to repentance begins with you. And guess what? It is really good for you and for me if we do this well, because then we won't need other people to do it for us. Like, how many of us really enjoy to be confronted with our sin? Uh, I don't think there's gonna be a whole lot of hands in the audience. So if you're doing this for yourself, if you're examining your own life, if you are being a judge of your own heart, if you're asking the Holy Spirit to reveal to you areas of your life that are out of step, then God will be faithful because God cares about your repentance. He will do this for you. And it's very good when God reveals to us even our own brokenness so that we don't have to have others reveal it for us. <laughs> Other people will do God's work if they love us, but if we're faithful to do this for ourselves, we can avoid much of the heartburn of that confrontation. We find this process that has been given to us by Christ himself in Matthew chapter 18. It's there, Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20. It says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. But it begins, first of all, with examining your own heart. In the Sermon on the Mount, which is where this judge not lest you be judged is found in Matthew chapter seven, Jesus sets the record straight on a number of doctrines. He's he's speaking with a a group of people who have this inflated view of themselves. Here at the beginning of chapter seven, Jesus deals with this deep-seated self-righteousness that was prevalent in that culture, a culture that was always trying to compare themselves with others, trying to vie for the top spots. Jesus says, begin with yourself. Judge not that you be not judged. Stop assuming that you are the standard of righteousness. Stop assuming that people need to measure up to you as kind of the benchmark for what righteousness should look like. Understand your place is a place is the same as your brother before the only judge, God himself, who is the only judge and lawgiver. Place yourself there. So examine your heart. Evaluate your life. Be ready to be teachable and humble and gentle. So we find in Galatians chapter six, verses one to four. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep a watch on yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. Meaning, 
If you're faithful to apply this standard to your life of examining your own life, you won't need to have a group of individuals who love you to confront you gently about restoring you back to fellowship because your heart is already going to be receptive to what God is saying. Not that you won't ever be confronted, but it'll be in the flow of normal conversation and your heart will be ready to hear what they have to say. Examine yourself. Second, ask yourself the question, can you overlook this sin? Can you overlook this sin? Proverbs 10, 12 says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Proverbs 17, 9 says, whoever covers an offense seeks love. But he who repeats a matter separates close friends. 1 Peter 4, 8 says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. 1 Corinthians 13, which is the chapter that speaks about love and kind of defines it for us, we find in verse 4, love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy or boast, it is not arrogant. Verse 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Can love cover this offense? And, And I would ask myself this question. Is my confrontation of this individual self-serving? Is it because I feel a little annoyed? Is it because they have hurt my feelings? Is it because they have taken advantage of my kindness? Is it because they've put me down or criticized me? Is it because they've not considered my preferences? If this is about me, then it's probably something that you need to cover. I need to work to endure all things. I need to work to give my hurt to God. I need to work to allow God to work in that individual instead of always feeling like I need to point out issues in somebody else's life. But when I see that their sin is affecting others, or when I see that the sin of their life is um, emblematic of a sin of an unbeliever, now I need to step in. How do I know? Well, Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 to 21 kind of gives us a, a good list of the kinds of sins that would identify somebody who's living like an unbeliever. And these are sins we always need to confront immediately. Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 to 21 says, Now the, now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murder, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I told you beforehand, just as I tell you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so because we care for their soul, And because we care for heaven's joy, we're going to confront them on these issues because we want to rescue them from the consequences of their sin. We're seeking repentance in this life, the life of our brother or sister in Christ. We're seeking to to undo the significant consequences of their sin. Third, Seek to lead your brother to repentance. Seek to lead your brother to repentance. 
The process that, that Christ gives in Matthew chapter 18 is so clear. It begins with this one-on-one interaction. It begins as you, as you see this offense, this sin in their life, particularly a sin or offense that is against others as well and not just against you, or a sin that is emblematic of, of them being apart from God altogether. We care about them. We address this privately. We do it for the sake of love. We do it for the sake of the reputation of our brother and sister in Christ. We do it to restore relationship, to help draw them in to relationship primarily with God and also to enjoy relationship, renewed, restored relationship with them ourselves. If they do not listen, Jesus tells us to go to our brother with one or two more. It says, if he listens to you, this is at the end of verse 15, you have gained your brother, but if he does not listen, in verse 16, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Meaning, two or three others who have also witnessed this sin. Two or three others who have also received or been the recipient of this sin against them. Two or three others that care for the the confession and repentance of this individual in calling them to Christ, calling them to repentance, going to them with two or three to, to substantiate this claim, to help provide further evidence of its truthfulness. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Our third response is to take it to the church. Allow the church to know. Make sure it goes public. So the the gravity of this sin is felt and experienced by all who are part of the family so that everybody in the church can pray for this individual, can pursue this individual. The, The truth is that in the company of the family of God, the the benefit of the relationships that we have in in inner uh, inner, uh, woven with this individual can help provide a perspective that that others can't. And so as many people are part of this process in, in calling them to repentance, God can work through his church and those individuals to get through to this, this person. If he will not hear the church, our fourth response is to treat the brother like an unbeliever. This is a hard word. This is a difficult word. But Jesus will go on. He says, truly I say to you, in verse 18, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything, They ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. What in the world is Jesus talking about? This verse gets misapplied so often. We talk about where two or three are gathered in my name, there I'm in the midst of them. So let's pray in a group of two or three or more, and God will be there, and God will answer. No, that's not the context of what's happening here. The context 
of what Jesus is talking about is specific to church discipline. So that when the church agrees about a sin of a person and the church is speaking to this individual about their sin, it's as if God was in the room, his authority in the room, speaking directly to that person about their sin. It's serious business for us to reject the company of those in the church who love us and see things the same and communicate to us about the sin in our life. The goal of repentance is always reconciliation. The the goal of confrontation and confronting sin is always restored relationship. It's always to draw them back to God. This morning, we're going to participate in remembering the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What was the cost for Jesus to make this possible? What did Jesus have to do to, to, to seek and to save the lost? What, what, did it, what, what, did, what did it cost him? Well, it cost him everything. It cost him his life so that he could make salvation available to sinners. First Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 to 32, give us an, ex- give us an opportunity to, to begin with ourselves. It says this, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and then, then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak, ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves, truly we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. You see, God cares about a holy church more than we ever will. And so God will step in if you won't, if I won't. God will step in and God will bring judgment. That's his desire to refine and draw individuals back to repentance but it begins with a self-examination. Where are you this morning in relationship to God? Are there sins in your life that are just okay? Are there sins in your life you've just allowed to slip on by? Are there areas that you know about that are terribly out of alignment with the standard that God has set? 